Thank you to each one who participated in our service this morning. This morning we are going to learn some important lessons from Jesus' sending forth the apostles into his harvest. We're going to see that Jesus sends forth laborers into his harvest in steps. First, he sends forth the apostles. Then he is going to send out the 72. And then down through the centuries, he sends out many others. And today, he is still sending out individuals into his harvest. So we want to learn important lessons from Jesus' instructions to the twelve when he sends them out. So turn with me, if you're not there, to Matthew chapter 10. And we begin by noting that Jesus called the apostles to be laborers. Matthew 10 verse 1 says, And he called to him twelve disciples. Then Matthew chapter 10 verse 2, The names of the twelve apostles are these. Jesus called them by name. Matthew 10, 2, 3, and 4, we have the list of the 12 individuals that Jesus summoned and sent forth to be his laborers. Jesus not only called them, but also empowered them, verse 1, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Up until this point, the apostles did not have that authority or power. They could not do those mighty deeds or works. They observed Jesus in doing them, but now they are going to be able to do them as well. Later, the 72 are going to share some of these powers Not all, but they were unique originally to the twelve. The other disciples could not, uh, were not empowered in that same way. Seventy-two were empowered in similar fashion, but not completely. Again, different from the other disciples. And Jesus sends out the laborers, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them. The term apostle does mean sent one. He sent them by twos. If you notice in the text, each of these individuals are paired with someone else. Notice verse 2. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. Second pair, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Third pair, Philip and Bartholomew. Fourth pair, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. Fifth pair, James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. And then the sixth pair, Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Later, Jesus is going to send out still other laborers into his harvest. This is an interesting passage, for it is very contextual, These instructions that we're going to read are specific to the 12 apostles, although there are great truths that we can learn from it as well. But I'm going to show how this is a dynamic portion of Scripture 
in which Jesus is going to bring about still further instructions and different instructions from those that are found in our present text. To give you somewhat of a sense of this, if you would turn with me to Luke chapter 9, please. Luke chapter 9. I'm also going to use my message this morning as a teaching tool on hermeneutics. Hermeneutics being the science of studying the scriptures, of analyzing the word of God, and uh, talking about the carefulness that we need to do so. In Luke chapter 9, we have the account of sending out the 12 apostles. And he called the 12 together gave them power and authority over all demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money. Do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. And we have instructions coinciding with the passage that we are presently in. Then if you look at Luke chapter 10, Start with verse 1. And after this, meaning after he'd sent the apostles out, after they had ministered, after this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into this harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack. And if you read through those verses, they sound very similar to the passage that we are in. But if you look at Luke chapter 9, you find out that they're very similar to what is stated there as well. So what do we find out? First, we find out that Jesus, on numerous occasions, said and did very similar things. That shouldn't surprise us. It tells us that he went through every village, every town, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And as he did that, many times, he would reiterate what was said at a previous town or village. He would say the same thing. Kind of reminds me of a politician doing a stump speech. And if you can think back through the presidential election, they will show highlights of these presidential candidates stopping at different towns. And they have what are referred to as talking points. They have five things that they say at every town they go to. Well, Jesus said very same, similar things at very different times. That's helpful to realize because sometimes when people are trying to come up with parallel passages, because you have the same verbiage, people think that it happened at the same time. No, 
Jesus said it more than once. For example, in our passage, in Matthew chapter 10, last week we saw Jesus said, pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest. Then he calls the 12. Here we find Jesus is going to send out 72. And he says, the Lord of the harvest is uh, send Pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest. We have John chapter 4, where Jesus is ministering to a Samaritan woman. And he says to the disciples, look, the fields are wide unto harvest. All different occasions. All different situations. That shouldn't surprise us. But what it teaches us is that we, we do need to keep these separate occasions in mind. Luke chapter 10 is very helpful because there we find instructions that are already given to us in Luke chapter 9. We see that Jesus repeats them. Many times those instructions are similar, but yet at other times they have differences. Those are not discrepancies in the text. Those are not errors. They are just that, different instructions for different people at different periods of time. Nothing should be surprising about that. So we're going to look at these instructions, and as we do, we're going to ask ourselves, what did these instructions mean for the twelve? Secondly, What did these instructions mean for others? And then thirdly, what do those instructions mean for us today? So this morning, looking at Jesus' instructions as he sends out the apostles. First, Jesus instructs the apostles as to where they are to go. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5. First, he tells them where not to go. These twelve Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans. Then Jesus tells them where to go, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to any Gentiles and don't enter any town of the Samaritans, but go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, if that's all that you knew of the scriptures, you would be far misled as to what Jesus said later and ultimately what Jesus says to us. That, of course, those instructions are going to change even for the apostles. After the resurrection, Jesus issues the Great Commission to the apostles. Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and uh, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Then, after the resurrection, prior to the ascension, just before he's caught up into heaven, he meets with the twelve again. And he says this, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria 
and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. So what he told them previously not to do, don't go into any town or village of the Samaritans, now he's going to specifically say, go there. And not just there, but go to the uttermost parts of the earth. So those instructions are dynamic. They serve a purpose. They serve a reason. They serve a design in the plan of God that he is unfolding in reaching the lost. So for us today, obviously we are in that period of time in which we are trying to reach the world. We are to go to our Judea, as it were, our Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. But what we're to recognize is that Jesus is still the Lord of the harvest. He still is sending out his laborers, and Jesus is still sending them out in keeping with his purpose and his design. He has a reason for sending people where he sends them. And he may choose to send that very same person to different places. Maybe even change their ministries or the people with whom they are to work. It is still occurring today. And it is moving to an ultimate purpose or end. One day, Jesus Christ is going to return. He's going to return when every last elect individual is saved. We're working towards that end. We don't know when that is. We don't know who that is. But God knows who it is. And he's directing people. He is sending out individuals that are reaching a world for Jesus Christ. It's going to come to a climax. It's going to come to a pinnacle. We are to be praying that God would indeed send forth laborers into his harvest. And he's bringing about that design. He's bringing about that purpose. Secondly, Jesus instructs the apostles as as to what they are to say and to do. First, Jesus tells the apostles what to say. Matthew 10, verse 7, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Proclamation is first and foremost. That is true in all of the instructions that Jesus gives throughout the New Testament. Proclamation is always central. And it's a proclamation of the good news, the gospel. The gospel of the kingdom. That message that the kingdom is at hand. That Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, is the one who is going to establish his kingdom. And Jesus tells the apostles what to do. Verse 8, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. The works that they were to do were in keeping with a demonstration of the kingdom's power. How 
was it to be known that the kingdom was at hand? How was it to be known that Jesus really is the one that he says he is? Well, first he performed miracles that attested to who he was, and then he gave to the 12 that ability as well, including even raising the dead. The works were in keeping with the demonstration of the kingdom's power. And so we read in Hebrews, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard God also bearing witness with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. It says that God bore them witness. It's interesting that it doesn't say that God bore with us that witness, but them. What am I trying to say? Well, what about today? We still are to go and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. We are to do good deeds that are associated with the reality of the kingdom's coming. Are we, in fact, to do what it says here, such as raising the dead and casting out demons? Well, I would have this caveat. First, first, we're to remember that God gave specific powers, even in that, it's not just even about time periods. He gave specific powers to the twelve that the multitude of disciples did not have. Then he gave specific powers to the 72 that the multitude of disciples did not have. But it also has to do with time periods and what God has, has purposed for us to do. Um, if such powers exist, they are rare. They are rare. But what we need to understand is that God's purpose ultimately does not change. In other words, we are still to be bringing forth works that demonstrate the reality and the fruit of, the, of God's kingdom to be present. So let's talk about healing for a moment. Healing. I believe that it has been God's purpose down through the generations to demonstrate the reality of care and compassion and power through not only the proclamation of his word, but also the physical care and help that is given to those that hear. Sometimes that is miraculous. Other times, that is not miraculous. But I would say to you that it is always in keeping with the mind and will of God that medical missions is a huge part of the missionary endeavor. Alleviating suffering alleviating disease, alleviating hardship. I'm going to talk more about this at the, at the very end. But that is a huge, huge part. We also live in a world in America where the gospel has flourished for many generations. And as a result, our country knows tremendous benefits from the transforming power of the gospel. 
And one of those great benefits is a lack of demonic worship. There are societies where demons are worshipped. Oh, I know that there are people today in America that worship demons, but it's not a wholesale giving of the country like there are in some third world countries where Satan is worshipped in a very demonstrable way. I'm saying to you, uh, it doesn't surprise me if God would work in those nations differently than he works in ours. If God works in those situations in an appropriate way that is keeping to them. What I'm saying to you is that the scripture is dynamic. And God is dynamic. And he sends out his people to achieve his purposes and do his will. And instructions are in keeping with that will and those purposes. Thirdly, Jesus instructs the apostles as to what they are to take. First, the apostles were not to get rich off the gospel. Notice verse 8. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without pain, give without pay. So the first thing is they're not to get rich off of these powers that God has given them to do. In other words, they're not supposed to charge $1,000 for a healing, $10,000 to raise the dead. He said, you've been given to this freely. You didn't have to pay for this power. You didn't have to pay for this ability. It's been given to you. You freely give. That is a transcending instruction in the word of God. We're not to be getting rich off of other people's heartache and misery and infirmity. However, the apostles were to be supported through their ministry. Look at Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 9. Matthew chapter 10, starting at verse 9. Nine, acquire no gold, nor silver, nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, no tunics, nor sandals, nor a staff. Now notice these words, for the laborer deserves his food. The laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. So they are to live by the fruits of, of the preaching and teaching of the gospel. The laborer is worthy of his reward. They are to stay in that house. Those people are to provide for them. They are to care for them. It is said, verse 10, they were not to take any bag for their journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff They're not to take any of those things with them. They're not to acquire any gold or any silver. If you look, we're not going to turn there, but if you would look at Luke chapter 10, you would find very similar instructions for the 72 when they are sent out. But now turn with me to Luke chapter 22. 
Luke 22. Starting with verse 35. And he said to them, When I send you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, our text, when I sent you out like that, did you lack anything? They said nothing. That was the point. That was to teach him them of his ability to provide for them. I set you out. What did you learn? Did you lack anything? No. He said to them, but now, but now, let the one who has a money bag take it. Likewise, a knapsack. Let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that scripture must be filled. The instructions change. Before, don't take any of these things. Now, he says, take them. The reason I'm pointing these things out to you is that we need to be very careful in the way in which we study the scriptures so that we are not drawing inappropriate conclusions from specific instructions that are given to a specific people for a specific time. How do you know that? Well, when Jesus gives different instructions to those very same people, or when Jesus gives different instructions to different peoples at different times. It is one of the reasons that people will say that the Bible is full of contradictions. It is not. It is not. The Bible is a progressive revelation, meaning that it is dynamic. It is a situation in which Jesus is achieving his purposes and his ends and giving instructions that are appropriate for that time and that that period. I'm not talking about situational ethics here. I'm just simply saying it's like a church. When I came, we were 75 people, We had three committees. Now we have all kinds of organization. We have all kinds of things that are appropriate to the period of time in which we live. We don't do everything the same way any longer. We don't have the same process. We don't get things out the same way. Our bulletin looks different. We now are going to have PowerPoint in our morning worship next week. Those are changes that come in the period of time in which you live. So too here with Jesus and the instruction that he gives. So what about today? The overarching truth is the laborer is still worthy of his wages. That is a transcending principle that's found throughout the word of God. That there is nothing wrong with the person who preaches the gospel, teaches the gospel, to live by that gospel but he is not to gouge others in doing so. He's not to fleece the flock in doing so. Secondly, God is still providing for his people today, and that's our ultimate confidence and trust. Whenever a person goes out to serve the Lord, that is their ultimate hope and confidence. God will provide for them. That's the lesson 
He said he wanted to teach them. God provides in many different ways. Sometimes he provides without the knapsack, without the sandals. Sometimes he provides with a number of knapsacks and a number of sandals. Whichever the way, it's still God's provision, and that's what we're to have confidence in. We are not to worry as God's people about whether or not we can fulfill God's mandate. Let me say that again. We never have to worry as God's people whether or not we can fulfill his mandate. Hudson Taylor said, God's work, God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. I think that is absolutely true. God's work done in God's way will never lack God's supply. We don't have to worry about whether or not we can fulfill God's purpose. All we have to worry about is, am I doing God's work? Am I doing God's will? If he calls and if he sends, he equips. He enables, he empowers, he provides. Fourthly, Jesus instructs the apostles as to how they are to respond to the people. The apostles were to bless those who received the apostles and their message. Verse 11. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. Worthiness is based on their receptivity to the apostles and the gospel. Notice verse 12. And as you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. They would go into a village or a town. If a house accepted the preaching and teaching of the apostles, they were to bless that house. They were to stay there. They were not to move from house to house. They were to stay in that one particular home for an extended period of time. You might wonder why. Why why would God make uh, an imposition if you will, on this house. Why did this house become the headquarters for the apostles that were in that particular town? Wouldn't it have been better they'd go door to door? Wouldn't they have had more influence if they would have stayed in, say, six homes over six periods a day, six days, as opposed to one home for six days? Why not spread it out? I believe the answers to that are myriad, They're also somewhat speculative. But what we find in our passage is that it is a blessing to that house to house them. It is a blessing to that house to have housed them. Let your blessing rest upon it. That's the overarching, transcending truth. It is always a blessing to house God's servants. To have that privilege of interaction, of hearing the word, of of seeing their lives, of engaging with them. It's also the way in which God moves in a sovereign way in which he disciples, in which he mentors, in which 
he develops individuals. Again, it is a way in which it determines where the apostles are to stay. Transcending truth. I almost was going to go back and develop the book of Jeremiah. I say develop the book of Jeremiah. How do you do the book of Jeremiah in 10 minutes? Since I couldn't answer that question, I didn't go there. But, but I'm tempted just to say this much. In the book of Jeremiah, God makes it clear that, that the people receive the shepherd they deserve based on their openness, based on their receptivity to the word of God. If they're open and receptive to the word of God, he's going to send them shepherds that will preach and teach the word of God. If they're not open to it, he's not going to send them the shepherds. That's a transcending principle. It should not surprise us when we find that God's servants are not evenly divided over the world. I'm, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. I, my mind is just different, I guess, than so many people, but... I sit and I listen to these statistics and they'll talk about how so many of God's people are working with so few individuals. And I'm sitting there saying, duh, of course. Of course, God is sending people to those that are receptive. And those that are willing to hear and serve are blessed. And we shouldn't be surprised by the book of Jeremiah by the book of Romans, and this passage, when God sends his people to those who hear and those who are worthy, it says. That worthiness is not found in themselves, but it's found in that grace of God, but they want to hear. Transcending truth. Spend your time with people who want to hear. That doesn't mean we shouldn't tell other people about Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you that when you find people that are receptive, when you find people that that want to hear, when you find people that want to study, pour your time and energy into those individuals. When you find somebody who says, I'd like to hear more, make your beeline back to that individual. What about people who aren't interested in hearing? How are they to respond to them? Well, let's look at our text, Matthew 10, 14. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. To shake off the dust from your feet or to leave that town was, in essence, and we may do that same kind of gesture even today and just say, well, I wash my hands of you. It means your duty, your responsibility has been complete. You're free. But notice also what it says, verse 15. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. 
They are to bring a message of warning. Of warning. Those that would refuse the apostles and refuse their message are in danger of judgment. And they're to bring that warning. We're to bring the warning to people that reject us and reject the gospel that they are in danger of judgment. They are heading down the wrong path. We should warn those of, as I say, their danger. I have found it fascinating to watch the response and progress of that response to the situation with the missionary Kent Brantley. I mentioned him last week. That uh, individual that uh, was, uh, is with uh, Good Samaritan uh, and contracted Ebola disease. You're with me, the doctor that was... Well, praise the Lord, he's been released. He's been healed, uh, and uh, he's out of the hospital. In the beginning, people were praising him for his endeavors, for his uh, goodness, for his uh, desire to help people, and the name of Christianity was getting praises. Well, doesn't take long for attitudes to shift. And there's been now a great backlash on two fronts. First of all, there has been a backlash concerning the ethical nature in which he was treated. Okay, there are now many pundits saying that he should have not have received the deferential treatment that uh, he received in flying him back from uh, Africa to the United States and uh, giving him the uh, uh, anecdote that he received, the, the medicine that he received, that uh, his life was being valued above that of the African community. And it was racist. And it was inappropriate. Uh, he should have died alongside of all the Africans that he went uh, to serve. There's been that backlash. Then there's been a backlash, even from, and I'm going to put in quotes, the Christian community, because I don't really know her personally, but Ann Coulter professes faith in Jesus Christ. And she has been scathing in her remarks about this whole process with uh, Kent Brantley. So let me read to you some of the things that she is saying, because I think it's on point for our discussion this morning of this text. She says, I quote, I wonder how the Ebola doctor feels now that his humanitarian trip has cost a Christian charity much more than any services he rendered. 
What was the point? Whatever good Dr. Kent Brantley did in Liberia has now been overwhelmed by the more than $2 million already paid by the Christian charities Samaritan's Purse and SIM USA just to fly him and his nurse home in separate Gulfstream jets, specifically equipped with medical tents and to care for them at one of America's premier hospitals. There's little danger of an Ebola plague breaking loose from the treatment of these two Americans at the Emory University Hospital. But why do we have to deal with this at all? Think about that. Why do we have to deal with this at all? Why should this be brought back to our shores? Why should we have to take the risk of bringing these people here? Why did Dr. Brantley have to go to Africa? The very first risk factor listed by the Mayo Clinic for Ebola, an incurable disease with a 90% fatality rate, is travel to Africa. Then she says, can't anyone serve Christ in America anymore? If Dr. Brantley had practiced at Cedars-Sinai Hospital in Los Angeles, and turned one single Hollywood power broker to Christ, he would have done more good for the entire world than anything he could accomplish in a century spent in Liberia. Think about that. He would have done more good if he would have turned one influential, powerful person in Hollywood to Christ than if he spent... 50 years ministering in Ebola. This one powerful Hollywood celebrity is more significant. If he had provided health care for the uninsured editors, writers, videographers, and pundits in Gotham and managed to open one set of eyes, he would have done more good than marinating himself in medieval diseases of the third world. That's not uncommon for our day and age to think that way. Franklin Graham, that's Billy Graham's son, Franklin Graham. He is the second director of uh, Samaritan's Purse. Said this. This is an article that comes from this week's USA's Today. I believe it's Thursday's edition. It's not an answer, I believe, to Ann Coulter, but rather to this other issue of the ethics that I mentioned first, but it addresses the bigger picture. This is what Franklin Graham has said in an interview to explain the appropriateness of what has happened with the doctor. These are his words. Samaritan's Purse has been working in Liberia since 2003. Long before the most recent Ebola crisis, Dr. Brantley also didn't move to Liberia to fight Ebola, but the fight came to us. He was part of our organization's post-residency program before volunteering to lead our Ebola case uh, management center. His wife and two children had been living with him in Liberia, but are safe and healthy because they flew home to the U.S. to attend a wedding before he started showing any signs of illness. He stayed behind to continue treating patients, But when he began to feel sick, he immediately isolated himself, 
Tests confirmed the staff's worst fears. Brantley contacted Ebola. While our staff in North Carolina and around the world prayed for God's healing hand, the medical team in Liberia, I could not be more proud of them, did everything they could to save his life, just as they were doing for every Ebola patient under their care. As Brantley's health deteriorated, he received a unit of blood from a 14-year-old boy who had survived Ebola and now wanted to help Brantley, the man who had saved his life. He also received a dose of the experimental drug. This was voluntary and risky. No one knew whether it would help, and there existed only three doses. American missionary Nancy Whitebowl received two doses in Liberia, but his condition worsened. He had nothing to lose. It may well be the reason they both survived, although that can't be confirmed at this point. Whether it was the unit of blood or the experimental treatment, God's hand was at work. But instead of cheering for lives saved or thanking God for his mercy, some are now debating whether a heroic doctor like Brantley should have received the experimental treatment. I suppose we also would have been criticized for experimenting on African patients if they would have given to them. This debate is simply not helpful. What the critics seem to be missing is Kent Brantley as a calling by God. There's the profundity. It's not about strategizing. It's not about money. It's not about appropriateness in the sight of man. It is God sent him there. Bottom line. And you see how that understanding changes our concept of money, of provision, of care, of strategy. Which better, to reach the one Hollywood influential people or to spend your life with a bunch of nobodies who can't provide influence or funds for the kingdom. The choice isn't ours. The choice is God's. It's where he deems to send people. It's where he leads us to invest our times. It's not about human strategies. He goes on to say he left the comforts of this country to serve those less fortunate in life. In fact, he did not receive the best medical care America has to offer so he can retire. Rather, one of the first things he and his family wanted to know when they arrived in Atlanta was how soon they could return to medical work overseas. In other words, this drug is being used to save a doctor who will say thank you by returning to some of the darkest, dirtiest, lonely places on earth to bring hope and healing to others. Where is the ethical dilemma in that? A person who is seeking to go out at the purpose and instruction of God. So the conclusion. First, while our duty is not the same as that of the apostles, it's quite similar. We're to go at Christ's bidding. We are to be enabled and powered by him and him alone. 
We're to rely upon his provision. We're to proclaim a gospel of the kingdom with deeds that are consistent with that proclamation and bring adoration and praise to it. We're to rely upon God for our well-being, our protection, and our care. And we're to announce the blessedness of those who receive the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and teach them that that blessedness is to be found in the communion of saints and to warn those who reject the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that warning, bring the sullen realization that to reject the gospel is to reject his own. And to wash our hands. I say that in a very careful way. Very, very careful way. But the idea here is you and I can't save anyone. Only God can save. And our duty and responsibility is proclaiming the word of God to everyone. And then when those that refuse to listen don't want to hear from us, we are to turn our attention to those who do want to hear and those that do want to listen and to those who do want to grow and those that do want to develop in their personal relationship to Jesus Christ. Those are transcending truths. Let's pray.